0: You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Creatively Optimistic by Giles Clayson. From Denverite, I'll be reading Denver has exceeded its goal of 125 miles of new bike infrastructure, Hancock says, by Nathaniel Minor. And Meadowlark's off-the-cluff residency hosts some of the city's best BIPOC musicians, by Isaac Vargas. From Westward, I'll be reading Energy Advocates Ask Residents to Flame Excel Amid Push for Higher Rates, by Katie Cheshire. And Residents Say Short-Term Rentals Have Become a Huge Problem in Jefferson County, by Benjamin Newfeld. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Creatively Optimistic, by Giles Clayson. Scott Roger has constructed a creative arrangement to avoid sleeping on the streets. After losing his security jobs with nightclubs and dispensaries during the pandemic, Roger became homeless. When the pandemic unemployment assistance and other programs in the American Rescue Plan Act expired, he found himself unable to pay his rent and slept his first nights in a tent under overpasses or anywhere else he could find shelter. Then, he had the idea to find a safer path forward by turning to his old love and working as a tattoo artist. I'm couch surfing right now and trying to get by, Roger said. I go over to their homes and tattoo, and we have a few beers. It gives me a place to sleep. At the end of the day, I've got a roof over my head and a safe place to sleep, rather than under the stars in the park. Roger has no shortage of clients. He has tattooed other unhoused individuals living in trailers and found a steady stream of housed clients. All of them let him crash on their floor or couch after lengthy tattoo sessions. Roger is fastidious about cleanliness and safety. He buys his single-use tattoo needles from mainstream tattoo supply shops. After donning gloves, Roger shows his clients the unopened needles and fresh ink. He also uses an antiseptic to clean the skin he plans on tattooing and then begins to freehand his work. I always feel honored that individuals let me decorate their bodies. We don't buy art anymore. It's crazy expensive, Roger said. Tattoos are the art people invest in. It is more than art. Tattoos are an expression of who we are. It is the art we carry on our bodies for the rest of our lives. It has meaning. Roger's life has been defined by two things, art and hockey. He walked on as a hockey player at the University of Denver and played for a year at the University of Colorado, too. His official position was defenseman, but his real job was to be the enforcer on the ice. He was good at hitting opponents and protecting his teammates. Roger found his greatest success playing on a couple of semi-pro teams around the Midwest, He played 47 games as a defenseman for the Minot Muskies in North Dakota. He also played 41 games for the Great Falls Americans in Montana. The hits that he sustained started feeling like daily car crashes, slamming against his body, and he decided to pursue his other love, working with pen and ink in calligraphy. Roger received a degree from the Art Institute of Colorado. While at the Art Institute, Roger found his groove doing etchings in bone, then metal. He briefly contemplated pursuing a career as an engraver for the United States Mint. Ultimately, Roger landed an apprenticeship at Celebrity Tattoo, where he found a bit of stability needling ink into skin. He was learning his craft and not making a lot of money yet, but he was assured that working as a tattoo artist would bring him security. Money has always been hard for me, Roger said. Money has been tight since I tried to make it in hockey. While I don't have much paper to show, I have memories for days. Roger finds it difficult to stay on one career trajectory. He has attention deficit disorder and gets bored quickly. He also talks fast, verbally sprinting from one subject to the next as quickly as he moved in and out of penalty boxes. His need to chase new interests led him away from tattooing full-time and he moved into drawing art and caricatures of children and families at the Denver Zoo and Elitches. He worked security jobs as well to stay afloat. Just before the pandemic hit, Roger was hired by Casa Bonita. He was certain it would give him a new purpose and creative outlet. He hopes the new owners will still honor the old offer. According to Roger, he recently stopped by the Casa Bonita construction site and has been told repeatedly that they will call the old staff back sometime soon. But it is far from a secure job offer. Until then, Roger continues to find individuals interested in trading a good night's sleep for a new tattoo. He doesn't think he will qualify for an apartment anytime soon because the eviction after the pandemic has locked him out of the apartment market. It is a non-starter everywhere he looks. But Roger is a creative optimist and believes he has found a solution. He's in the process of buying an RV to give him a secure place to lay his head. It's the only option he sees for himself. I've lived a very nice life, but I'm homeless right now, Roger said. There are a lot of us living in a new reality after COVID and in places we never expected to be. The next two articles are from Denverite. Denverite has exceeded its goal of 125 miles of new bike infrastructure, Hancock says, by Nathaniel Miner. The city and county of Denver has built 137 miles of new bike infrastructure in the last five years, Denver Mayor Michael Hancock announced on Wednesday. That surpasses the goal of 125 miles Hancock set in 2018. These are new opportunities for people to get to work, to the store, to school, to recreation, to do it safely and comfortably, Hancock said as he stood next to a new bike lane adjacent to Rocky Mountain Lake Park in northwest Denver. These alternative modes of transportation and travel improve our health and our climate. The 137-mile figure needs a caveat, however. The city double-counted some of the new bike lanes, so one mile of a street with two opposite-direction bike lanes counts as two miles of bike lanes. Hancock, who was driven to the event in a large black SUV, has long pushed plans with goals of reducing driving in favor of cleaner modes of transportation, like walking and biking. One 2017 plan, for example, set a goal of increasing the percentage of commuters who walk or bike from 8% to 15% by 2030. The push to quickly build bike infrastructure is one of the most public ways his administration has tried to manifest those plans. The old single-mode transportation system in Denver no longer applies, he said. We have grown exponentially over the last decade. We have to be a more multimodal city, and we've got to have the infrastructure that supports it. Bicycle advocates say they're grateful for the new infrastructure, but they want it to be better and want more of it, too. There is a definitely improvement, said David Chin, a self-described bike dad and member of the Denver Bicycle Lobby who attended Hancock's press conference. There is definitely good infrastructure in the city. The problem is it's not connected. Chin said he rode on the new Julian Street bikeway to reach the press conference. The bikeway was great, he said, until it hit busy West 38th Avenue and abruptly ended with no connection to other bike infrastructure. We do not have a connected network yet, he said. Hancock said his press conference was not a victory lap and insisted the city would continue to build new bike infrastructure. But whether and how that happens will largely be up to Denver's next mayor. Hancock will leave office in July. One finalist for that job, Kelly Bro, initially told Denverite she didn't think the city needed more bike lanes, She later said she wants a reset on bike and pedestrian infrastructure in light of rising fatalities. Are we making the right investments in the right places, she asked. I don't know that we're building them, bike lanes, in a way that is improving safety, and my priority is safety when we build those. The other contender, Mike Johnston, has said he supports removing parking or travel lanes as appropriate to create more protected bike lanes. What becomes clear every time you ride is that not all bike lanes are created equal, Johnson said at a March forum on transportation. We know that for someone to just paint lines on the street and expect you to ride next to cars going 50 miles an hour does not mean that you feel safe. And so I think the key question here is how are we creating a network of high comfort bike lanes that have real protections? Hancock's staff wanted more high comfort bike lanes, but cars got in the way. City officials said in 2020 that they'd favor high-comfort bike lanes. The city defines those as bike lanes protected from moving vehicles by physical barriers, trails, and paths separated from traffic in neighborhood bikeways, streets designed to slow and limit vehicle traffic. The city considers painted bike lanes, even if they are buffered from traffic, to have a moderate or low comfort level. Using those definitions, 69 miles or just over half of the 137 new miles of bike infrastructure are either low or moderate comfort. 68 miles are high comfort. Here's the breakdown from the city. 24 miles of painted bike lanes, 45 miles of buffered bike lanes, 23 miles of protected bike lanes, 34 miles of neighborhood bikeways, and 11 miles of shared-use paths and trains. Advocates have complained that some high-comfort projects were watered down along the way after community pushback. Some have been shelved entirely. The city postponed an ambitious plan to install protected bike lanes on Washington and Clarkston streets through the densely-packed Capitol Hill neighborhood in 2020 after residents raised concerns about the loss of on-street parking. The residents who are using the on-street parking are not wealthy, Brad Cameron president of Neighbors for Greater Capitol Hill, told Westward in 2020. He was not available to speak to Denverite on Wednesday. They're renters, and they work all over the metro area. The folks who will suffer the most from this don't have garages. It was really disappointing for the city to drop the Capitol Hill project, said Molly McKinley, a Capitol Hill resident and policy director for the Denver Streets Partnership. It's one of the areas that the city really needs and can rely on to make the mode shift goals that it set for itself, she said, adding, I hope that it's something that the next administration revisits. Bike lanes on Washington and Clarkson have been in city plans since at least 2011, and the city has not dropped it entirely, said Sam Piper, multimodal planning supervisor for the city's Department of Transportation and Infrastructure. That's still in our bike plan, he said, We still are going to move that project forward. In the meantime, Piper said, the city will focus first on lower-impact neighborhood bikeways on nearby Emerson and Pearl Streets. Meadowlark's Off-The-Cuff Residency hosts some of the city's best BIPOC musicians by Isaac Vargas. Up a small set of stone steps, Meadowlark's back patio is a pink and purple-lit space with a tree planted in the middle, its foliage slightly covering the site of center stage. Surrounding the island structure built around the tree are people seated holding their drinks and joints, collectively facing toward the back corner of the room where a wooden stage is lit by vintage overhead lamps. On the left side of the stage, guitarist Emmanuel Alexander, artistically known as Name Backwards, plays neo-soul funk and jazz fusion riffs and melodies. Using head nods, guitar motions, and the occasional smile, Alexander communicates with those that accompany him on stage. As the music builds and each musician finds their space on the song, some in the crowd begin to draw closer to the stage and, like Alexander's locks, start to move to the rhythm of improvised sound. Once he's got the music and the people in his pocket, Alexander finally looks into the crowd and smiles. He knows his magic is working. The performance is part of Off the Cuff, a musical residency at Metalark Bar that has become one of Denver's hidden gems for local talent. The residency, hosted by Alexander, is a weekly jam session style performance of professional BIPOC musicians. The goal is to highlight musicians of color in a historically black neighborhood that was at one point considered the Harlem of the West. The 21 and over free show happens every Wednesday night starting at 9.30 at the Meadowlark Bar. For Alexander, the residency means highlighting some of the best local talent he's come across touring the Denver music scene. He grew up a percussionist in Aurora before eventually picking up the guitar in 2014. He studied jazz and American music at Metro and eventually joined his first band in 2017 as a bassist for a local folk band. Performing shows around Denver eventually led him to meet Denver musician Wes Watkins, who took him under his wing early on in his career. Watkins got Alexander a gig at Ophelia's and would regularly refer him to other bands or people around town. Watkins is the reason why I'm trying to bring black and brown people into Five Points, Alexander said. He was a big advocate for that. To see him in the Denver music scene another black person actually in the scene doing stuff around town. It was really cool to see that. Alexander started playing with Watkins at Meadowlark in 2021 before eventually encouraging Alexander to take over the venue while Watkins focused on other endeavors. Anytime we would play a gig in Five Points, it's like, where are the black people? Where are the brown people? You don't see them here, Alexander said. We would always talk about that. Even in 2017 and 2018, I didn't really see too many black people. I really wanted just to bring more of that community to Denver because it's important and I'm part of it. What began as a bi-weekly show hosted every first and third Wednesday of every month has now blossomed into a weekly residency that regularly draws 50 to 60 people late on a weekday. Jason Torres lives near Meadowlark and attends the midweek show when he can. I live two blocks away, and I see some of the best jazz, R&B, and hip-hop from a young generation, Torres said. Name Backwards is bringing in all these talented people. These musicians are all so high-level. I don't think he brings in anyone that sucks. Alexander doesn't like calling off-the-cuff, an open mic, or a jam session. What I call it is intentional improv, Alexander said. It's for experienced musicians to really express themselves in a way that maybe they haven't done before. Alexander will begin each show with an improvised set featuring his band. Then, throughout the night, he will bring up local talent that he knows or is familiar with to improvise with the musicians on stage. Sometimes it's pre-planned. Other times he's just scouting the room to see who he recognizes. Artists like singer and songwriter John Winston might hop on stage to freestyle a verse, Local poet Franklin Cruz might recite a poem, or singer Venus Cruz might improvise soulful lyrics. Alexander plays regularly with local musicians Will Gaines and Khalil Brown. Brown, who is originally from Colorado Springs and moved to Denver two years ago, sees off-the-cuff as an escape from the outside world and an opportunity for musicians to express how they really feel. We're playing the things that we feel and experience day to day, Brown said. We get to come here and have a safe place to release those different thoughts and feelings. We need to express this, and people need to hear it. Denver's got something special here. What makes the performances at Off the Cuff so special is the spirit of improvisation. As Gaines puts it, Improv is how you keep your shit fresh. If you go up knowing what you're going to play, that's one thing. But if you don't know what's going on, it keeps you on your toes. It challenges the musicians. It's really fun to hear and watch how it's happening. We just built it organically, Gaines continued. The music brings people in. The more we play, the more people come down to see what's up. Historically, Five Points is a black neighborhood, so we just like to feature black, brown, indigenous people. We never left in the first place. We're just letting everybody know we're here. We don't plan anything. We just come up here and make it happen. It's kind of magical." Venus Cruz, a regular performer at Gerard's pool hall down the block, described the improv style as a spirit of immediate forgiveness and immediate creativity. Cruz said that you gotta come with it. You don't have to be perfect, but you have to try. Music is a risk. It's a really good feel. We play with each other and it's diverse, which I love. It's great musicianship. Alexander described improvisation as a tool that he used to improve as a musician. Jumping in with other talented musicians is scary, but the sink or swim moment, the learning experience, is what matters most. If you sink, then you go home and you shed the fuck out of that tune, come back the next week, and then you'll be able to play that tune. But if they call another tune that you don't know, you're going to sink again, right? That's how I learned, Alexander said. The following articles are from Westward. Energy Advocates Ask Residents to Flame Xcel Amid Push for Higher Rates by Katie Cheshire. Amid public pressure to get energy bills down, the Colorado Legislature passed a utility regulation bill during the 2023 session, but the job's not finished yet, according to energy advocates. Now it's time for residents to turn up the heat on XL Energy And they'll have two chances to do that during upcoming public hearings about the energy provider's attempt to raise electric rates through a formal request process with the Colorado Public Utilities Commission. Customers will have the opportunity to weigh in at meetings on May 31st and July 11th via Zoom. Leslie Gustrom of the Boulder nonprofit Clean Energy Action has been paying close attention to Excel's rate cases since 2007. She says there has been, have been letters written continuously to the commission requesting that it not let the utility giant raise rates. I've always felt that there were a lot of letters, but frankly, nobody was paying attention, she says. Now people are, and that's amazing. It's important for people to turn out. Glustrom has seen how the utility sausage is made and the way large companies like Excel typically get most of what they ask for. But she hopes things will change this time around because of the increased attention. It actually is shifting the system, she says. We've got to show up to create enough of an impact that we very slowly shift the way the system works. She was one of those who worked on the 2023 bill to help shift the system to align more with what people need, including clean energy priorities. Danny Katz. Executive Director of the Col- Colorado Public Interest Research Group says that while the final version of the legislation, SB 23-291, doesn't require quite as much action as originally proposed, it will help protect people from paying for unnecessary expenses like the company's tax penalties or political contributions. Excel agrees that the bill, with go- which Governor Jared Polis signed on May 11th, will help customers. There are a couple of items within the bill that I think will really help with stabilizing and offering more manageable, affordable rates and not necessarily having a high price impact during extreme weather, says Holly Velasquez-Horfath, Regional Vice President of State Affairs and Community Relations for Excel. SB 23291 gives permission for utility companies to defer high commodity prices over a five-year period so that the impact of fluctuations in the natural gas market don't hit customers all at once. Because Xcel depends on the global energy market, it is beholden to those fluctuations, and Velazquez-Horvath believes that having additional management tools will benefit customers. However, Katz argues that the best way to make sure that people aren't constricted by natural gas and its fluctuations is by transitioning away from it as an energy source. The good news is we have the technology, he says. We can produce energy and heat with cheaper fuel, reliably. We can reduce waste throughout the system, and that's going to save people money. But there's more that needs to be done than just this bill. Still, the bill will help with provisions that prevent utilities from recovering the costs of hooking up new homes or businesses to gas pipelines. Instead, that responsibility will now rest with developers, which could mean that more developments decide to go all-electric, according to Katz. Velasquez-Horvath notes that part of the conversation around SB 23291 focused on how to better invest in the electric distribution system if customers continue to adopt electrification. When I say distribution system, it's the poles and wires that you see potentially in your backyard or in your neighborhoods, she explains. That, we have seen has capacity constraints on it and will have to be something that we need to proactively invest into. She adds that XL will continue talking to lawmakers between legislative sessions to work on ways to make electric distribution and adoption easier. SB 23291 also requires that studies be conducted on several topics related to electrification, including an examination of how to treat new gas infrastructure buildouts and depreciation of gas assets. We want to make sure we're avoiding a situation where we're investing in some big power plant or other key infrastructure that we're then planning on turning off before we pay it off, Katz says. The PUC and Excel have been negotiating over how much customers should pay to help Excel recover costs from coal plants being shut down early, and the legislation could help to keep gas from going that way too. The commission is also considering an electric rate case to join the gas rate increase Excel implemented in November of 2022. That same month, Excel applied to increase electric rates by $312 million across the board, about a $7 per month increase for the average residential customer. It's appalling, Glustrom said, of the company's attempt to raise rates, but Excel argues that's not the case. Velasquez-Horvath claims the rate hikes are needed to help invest in the electric distribution system to keep it running safely and to prepare it for coming system changes. Rate cases are a normal business practice, she says. It's all about transformer replacements, pole replacements, making sure that the distribution wires are maintained and we don't have a system that is not updated and upgraded for delivery. But Glustrom points out that XL sells about as many kilowatt hours as it did 20 years ago, but makes millions of dollars more than it used to. She says the fact that sales aren't increasing, but profit is, indicates that the company could be taking more than it should. She also notes that raising electric rates did contribute to high bills this winter, despite the spike in natural gas prices driving most of the cost. In the past... Excel has argued that bills would be flat, even if electric rates increased. That, Glustrom says, is because the price of natural gas has been low over the past decade. Now that it's high, those bills aren't flat anymore. It's that underlying increase in electric rates that I'm also very concerned about, she continues. People that, for whatever reason, are using air conditioning, they also have really high summer bills, and that's going to be an issue. Velasquez-Horvath says that the future is bright on the summer energy front, with other utility partners in the region also forecasting that the West is more prepared for heat waves than in years past. We've also been actively making plans to maximize our own generation just so that we can secure those resources for our customers, even if and when we get an extreme high heat day, she adds. Excel has been working on short-term energy contacts and is currently in the testing phase with two utility scale solar farms that are scheduled to go online july 1st plus velasquez horvath says that about 50 percent of XL customers now have time of use rates these are determined based on when people use energy with higher rates during times that people tend to use the most electricity the program is designed to help colorado residents be conscious of the energy load on the system with the incentive of saving money by waiting a few hours to run the dishwasher or turn on the A.C. outside of the peak hours of 3 to 7 p.m. We'll see how our customers are adopting this rate structure, and hopefully we'll see a financial benefit as well if they can figure out how to manage their energy use differently, Velasquez Horvath says, noting how she and her family have begun waiting until later in the evening to turn on their A.C. Regardless of how much it costs, This summer is gearing up to be a hot one for XL at the PUC. Residents say short-term rentals have become a huge problem in Jefferson County by Benjamin Neufeld. Residents across Jefferson County say they have fallen victim to an issue that has long plagued other parts of the state, short-term rentals, or STRs. Joining Denver in some of Colorado's biggest ski towns, which have created strict rules for STRs in recent years. People from across the mountain county west of the Mile High City are complaining about rotating doors of strangers wandering through their neighborhoods and on their property, loud late-night parties, and behavior that people fear could start wildfires. Residents say investors have come to Jefferson County in droves to take advantage of the area's beauty and attractiveness for tourists, as well as its lax STR regulations. The locals have banded together to form the Foothills Community Action Group and are asking Jeffco officials for stricter STR regulations along with stricter enforcement for regulations already in place. Chris O'Keefe, Jefferson County's Director of Planning and Zoning, which is responsible for the regulation of STRs, says he and his department are fully aware of the issues plaguing the area. While he says the county is actively working to get a handle on the issues being reported, he notes that it's a relatively small governmental body that is ultimately trying to go up against an extremely lucrative industry and uncooperative STR vending giants like Airbnb and Verbo. According to O'Keefe, Jefferson County does have a licensing requirement for STR operators, but the county's ability to enforce that requirement is extremely limited. The Planning and Zoning Department has a team of six people on its enforcement team, and those six individuals are responsible for all departmental regulation enforcement, not just of STRs, for a county of over half a million people. O'Keefe estimates that there are probably seven or 800 short-term rentals operating in Jefferson County illegally. However, he explains... Because STR vendors have not complied with the county's requests for data regarding the number and location of STRs in the area, that estimate is rough. Only 28 short-term rentals have gone through the process and been approved for a license, he adds. Jefferson County operates on a complaint-based system for STR enforcement, but even that struggles to yield results. Speaking at a community meeting hosted by the Foothills Community Action Group on April 27th, O'Keefe told community members that the county can impose a $100 fine on non-compliant STRs, but it must take offenders to court in order to collect the fine. With the problem so large and the county's resources so limited, there is simply no way to enforce that penalty. Additionally, O'Keefe points out, the volume of STR-related complaints in Jefferson County has grown in recent years. It's really taken a toll on our enforcement team, he says. Randy Leonard, one of the leaders of the Foothills Community Action Group, says that many members have reported issues such as disruptive parties activities at STRs late at night and increased wear and tear on private roads from the traffic the rentals bring into rural neighborhoods. Resurfacing for the roads costs thousands of dollars, he adds, and is the financial responsibility of the neighborhood's residents. However, the most crucial concern of Jeffco residents has been the increased potential for wildfires breaking out. Locals who spoke to Westward say that STR guests have allegedly been flicking cigarette butts and setting off fireworks in high-risk areas where rental units are located. According to WildfireRisk.org, Jefferson County has an 88% higher risk for wildfire compared to other U.S. counties. Evergreen specifically has 99% higher risk. As a result, Jefferson County frequently enacts fire restrictions and bans. County residents fear that short-term renters are not only unaware of the wildfire risks in the area and therefore do not take the proper precautions, but that they also do not get the wildfire risk phone alerts and red flag warnings that long-term residents receive. Economic issues from the STR market which have plagued other touristy mountain towns, have also impacted Jefferson County. Resident Heather Williams says the lucrative market has made the housing supply limited and expensive. One of my daughter's teachers is unable to move out of her parents' house because she has nowhere she can either rent or purchase, Williams claims. Real estate listing sites like Zillow and Redfin put the average median prices for homes in the county in the neighborhood of $600,000. One Zillow listing in Morrison, which is currently accepting backup offers, is advertised as a highly successful, luxurious, fully furnished Airbnb Verbo vacation rental. The listing description continues. This property grossed just under $12,000 in March and is positioned to earn even more during our high summer season. The asking price is $975,000. O'Keefe says that the Jefferson County Planning and Zoning Department is actively in a process right now to update our regulations. He says the county will be conducting multiple community meetings to gather feedback on the future of STR rules, though dates have not yet been set. He adds that they will be conducting research on STR rules in neighboring municipalities, and they plan to hire third-party contractors to assist in their enforcement of the regulations. Leonard says that he and the rest of the Foothills Community Action Group will keep after them to make sure those updated regulations come through. In a statement, Airbnb Senior Public Policy Manager Alex April told Westward, our priority is to work with lawmakers across the state on rules that simultaneously address community concerns and protect the economic benefits of home sharing for homeowners and local communities that rely on tourism. We strive to be a good local partner and are supportive of the city's efforts to propose reasonable and fair regulations and look forward to collaborating with them. Verbo did not respond to a request for comment. Jefferson County residents can send their short-term rental concerns to str at jeffco.us. Copperhead Crushing the Competition in BattleBots Tournament by Benito El Kelty. The Avs, the Mammoth, the Nuggets, and now Copperhead. Even with the Rockies' disappointing season, Colorado has been rich with playoff contenders of late. The fiercest of all could be Copperhead, the robot programmed to mangle and kill other robots with its rotating metal drum that makes it look like a Roomba from Mad Max. Copperhead has been on the Discovery Channel's BattleBots for four seasons, and this year it's competing exceptionally well, according to team captain Luke Quintal. We've always had a pretty mediocre season for the most part. We've always thought we had a pretty good robot, but for one reason or another, things would break or go wrong, says Quintal, who became a fan of the sport when he was 12 and is the team's third captain, but only the first to take Copperhead into a battle bots championship. So we never had a ton of publicity on the show, but this past season we actually had the best season we ever had. On May 18th, the Fat Sully's South Broadway location hosted a watch party for Keen Tal, his parents, some friends, and a few Copperhead fans and teammates, as the robot battled through round 16 in the penultimate match of the season. More people showed up the, at the Pizzas joint to watch this show than they did to watch the Nuggets go two games up on the Lakers. BattleBots, which used to be on Comedy Central from 2000 to 2002, is airing its season finale on Thursday, May 25th, and Copperhead is poised to win the Giant Nut, which is equivalent to the Lombardi Trophy or the Stanley Cup for combat robots. Teams from all over the U.S. as well as England, Brazil, Australia, New Zealand, the Netherlands and Canada have been competing this year. The Copperhead team is the only one from Colorado and has members from along the front range. Although the sport seems suited to engineers, The robot builders come from all walks of life, says Quintal, who works as a computer server administrator by day. Copperhead's drum spinner is operated by Chad New, president of Nature's Box Pet Emporium, Colorado's largest pet shop and an original sponsor of the robot. Other Copperhead supporters include Hall of Justice Comics and Collectibles in Parker and Gear Team Apparel out of San Antonio. Some of the team members are holdovers from the days when the robot was Poison Arrow, which competed on BattleBots in 2016. That robot, which ran on four wheels instead of two, was designed by Zachary Goff, who'd created another robot named UnmakerBot that competed in smaller events the year before. UnmakerBot was essentially a testbed for what would eventually become Poison Arrow, Quintal says. Zack designed Copperhead as a replacement to Poison Arrow. Copperhead was designed to be more competitive. Goff served as team captain during Poison Arrow's lone season on the show, and for two of Copperhead's seasons before being succeeded in 2021 by Robert Cohen, a well-known combat robot builder with a large following on his DIY social media pages. Cohen felt kind of burned out after that season, says Keenthal, who joined the team when Copperhead was created and became captain last year. Other teammates include Heather Williams, Keenthal's girlfriend, who has a background in political science, and 19-year-old Alec Malinger, a student at the Colorado School of Mines studying mechanical engineering who has a YouTube page on building robots. Malinger is also a fan of Cowan, who boasts nearly 50,000 subscribers on his YouTube page. In BattleBots matches, two robots go into an arena that's about 28 feet by 28 feet, with metal grinders called hazards on the sides, buzz saws that pop out of the ground, screws that come out of the wall and drag robots to the hazards, and platforms known as shelves that raise robots above each other. A robot has three minutes to knock out its opponent, one is often destroyed before the end of the match. If neither dies, the judges decide the winner based on damage, control, and aggression. You never want to go to the judges, Keintall says. Usually, you try to go for the knockout. Sometimes it can be kind of controversial when it goes to the judges. The actual competitions occur in Las Vegas during two, two weeks in October, but non-disclosure agreements require that participants and fans keep quiet until the shows air. Some people leak stuff online, but we have a very passionate bunch of moderators on all of the social media sites like Reddit and Facebook, Quintal says. There are a lot of people who know what happened, but everyone's pretty tight-lipped about it. The Discovery Channel airs one episode a week for 20 weeks. Each season starts with 50 robots, and the tournament includes the best 32. According to regulations, robots must weigh in at under 250 pounds and have spinners, the hunk of metal that most use to eviscerate their opponents, that rotate no faster than 250 miles an hour. The beefy, tanky copperhead, as Keen describes the robot, moves around on two wheels and wields a 55-pound hunk of tool steel that spins up to 140 miles an hour. We just run it into our opponent, and it just sends them flying through the air and breaking parts along the way, he says. Five Points Jazz Festival Turns 20 by Justin Criado. Five Points was nicknamed the Harlem of the West during the jazz age of the 1920s and 30s with star-powered acts such as Duke Ellington, Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday, and Miles Davis all stopping to play in the predominantly black community. Home to more than 50 bars and clubs during that time period, Five Points became synonymous with jazz. And that rings true to this day thanks in large part to events like the Five Points Jazz Festival. The annual Free Affair, presented by Denver Arts and Venues, is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year, taking over Welton Street on Saturday, June 10th from noon to 8 p.m. Over the past two decades, the festival's goal has remained the same, to teach about and honor the neighborhood's musical past while showcasing the best of the Mile High City's brass bands, jazz acts, blues groups, and more, along with nationally known musicians. If you look at the roster of musicians who have a history in Five Points, it's people like Ella Fitzgerald, Duke Ellington, Billie Holiday. The jazz greats all came and played in Denver and stayed in the Five Points community, says Sonia Ray, manager of cultural affairs at Denver Arts and Venues. It was a hopping place in jazz. I think part of our impetus is to try to remind people of that incredibly rich history and keep it alive. This year we'll see the annual New Orleans-style second-line parade along Welton Street between 29th and 25th Streets with the Gorilla Fanfare Brass Band leading the procession from 12 to 1215 before the festivities move to four stages along Welton Street as well as inside stages at venues including Roxy Theatre, Zavante's Other Side, Brother Jeff's Cultural Center, Goad Zur, and the Marigold, both in the main venue and on the roof. The lineup features 40 stellar musical acts, among them the Roger Lari Experience, the Colorado Mambo Orchestra, Same Cloth, Joe Smith and the Spicy Pickles, the Delta Sonics, Stafford Hunter and Latin Jab Jazz Explorations, and the Mary Lynn Gillespie Quintet. Musicians love the Five Points Jazz Fest as much as the attendees. Gillespie is a Colorado music veteran and was a founding member of the Boulder-born, Grammy-nominated jazz group Rare Silk in the 80s. I'm thrilled to present a set of music for Five Points Jazz Fest this year with my incomparable band featuring Eric Gunnison, Gabriel Mervin, Bill McCrossin, and Andreas Schmidt, she says. We're putting a fun set together for the Roxy. I've got a lot of miles with these musicians who all love performing together, so we'll swing it and funk it up a bit. Al front frontman for Denver Blues Band, the Delta Sonics, is also looking forward to returning to Five Points Jazz. His group first played the event four years ago. The Delta Sonics are excited to play the Five Points Festival with its long and rich history of blues and jazz music, he says. B.B. King, Bobby Blue Bland, Little Milton, and Ray Charles all played in Five Points, among others, and our band is heavy into Chicago and Texas blues. Bands apply to be part of the festival before a selection committee finalizes the lineup, Ray explains, adding that the energy for this year's event is palpable. I feel the enthusiasm from musicians who really want to get back to work. We had something like 135 applications for 40 slots, There was a lot of demand from musicians. Even when I go out and about in our neighborhood now, the parks are absolutely jam-packed with people whenever the sun is out. It feels like people are ready to get out again and have a good time. The selection committee reviewed all of the bands and their music and scored them, she continues. Then we chose based on not just their scores, but also diversity of genre and people. Our hope is that we put together a really, really well-rounded program with lots of different kinds of jazz. We've got blues, swing, straight-ahead jazz. The hope is that there's something for everybody, so that no matter what kind of jazz you like, there's going to be something for you. This is only the second in-person iteration the festival has held since the pandemic, and Ray says that organizers are expecting to possibly hit the capacity at 100,000 people. We're hoping that we're going to have a full house, she says. We were still on the cusp of the pandemic last summer, and it feels like we're back to normal, so we're hoping for great weather and a great crowd. Either way, the festival has come a long way since its humble beginnings in 2004, which presented just three bands in the parking lot of the Blair Caldwell African American Research Library. Because of inclement weather that year, Musicians and concert goers were forced inside, where library staff quickly moved to accommodate attendees and performers, but the event was still considered a success. Denver Arts and Venues, then known as the Denver Office of Cultural Affairs, brought the festival back the following year with both indoor and outdoor performances, as well as an expansion to include more community groups and vendor activities, which remain a big part of the event today. In 2005, organizers also began to use the event as a platform to honor individuals who have made significant contributions to the Five Points community and the legacy of jazz in Denver and beyond. So reaching 20 years is a milestone to celebrate, says Donna Smith, who produced the first event in 2004 as the Performing Arts and Community Programming Coordinator at the Denver Office of Cultural Affairs. Seeing the Five Points Jazz Festival reach 20 years makes me proud to have played a role in supporting the treasured heritage and rich legacy of this community, she says. Ray is thankful for the neighborhood businesses and community that collaborate on the event each summer. We're really grateful to the businesses and the residents of the Five Points neighborhood, who have been really great partners in this effort. We couldn't do this without the cooperation and enthusiasm from the people in and around Welton Street and the Five Points community, she says. We've just had great interactions with people. Quite a few businesses are donating space or having bands in their space. To make for a better experience, a schedule building feature is available on the website, and an interactive Google map allows people to scan QR codes at various locations on Welton Street to see the schedules for each stage. You can go and check out all of the artists and hear an audio clip and then add those artists to your schedule, Ray explains, That way, you'll never miss a band that you want to hear. Denver Arts and Venues has been bringing you the Five Points Jazz Festival since its inaugural year, adds the agency's executive director, Ginger White. The first event was small, with three bands and a few hundred attendees. But since that first day in the Blair Caldwell African American Research Library parking lot, we have seen the festival grow year after year, and we are so excited to celebrate 20 years with Denver residents and visitors. Five Points Jazz Festival, Saturday, June 10th, noon to 8 p.m., Welton Street, free. Find more information, including participating venues and a full schedule, at artsandvenuesdenver.org. What to Know About Red Rocks' New Bag Policy by Juliana Eau Claire Every Coloradan knows that Red Rocks Park and Amphitheater can see extreme weather changes in a matter of hours, what starts as a mild sunny day can rapidly evolve into pouring rain and concert goers never like to be caught unprepared. So when Red Rocks updated its bag policy for the 2023 season, restricting visitors to single pocket bags no larger than 13 inches wide, 15 inches tall and 8 inches deep, some venue regulars were unpleasantly surprised to say the least. Brian Kitts, Denver Arts and Venues Marketing and Communications Director, says this change serves two purposes to keep entrance lines moving quickly and to keep concert goers safe. He explains that staff will no longer have to open and check multiple pockets on bags, and the one-pocket system reduces the chance of any banned items slipping through security. I think part of the issue is that we were seeing fans coming in with giant backpacks that were taking up room and taking up to several minutes to check. Kit's notes. He explains that this policy isn't new to Denver. One-pocket policies are already in place at Coors Field and Empower Field. Red Rocks also still allows visitors to bring food, empty water bottles, hydration backpacks such as Camelbacks, fanny packs, purses, and soft six-pack-sized coolers. But local resident Ryan Kiefer who's been attending Red Rocks concerts since the 80s, says the new bag policy didn't shorten the entrance lines at all. Kiefer made the trek to Red Rocks for the first time since the bag policy update to see Billy Strings, and even with this new policy, it was the longest line I've ever seen to get in, in all of the years, in the hundreds of shows I have been to, Kiefer said. He suggests that if Red Rocks management wants to decrease the entrance line lengths, Then it should hire more staff members, instead of limiting what guests can bring to concerts. One of the things that was great about Red Rocks is that they were quite understanding with their policies, Kiefer says. You could bring food in. You can still do some of those things, although I don't know how you could do possibly that with the new bag policy. For the Billy Strings concert, Kiefer brought a bag he thought might work. It has one main pocket with a flap with a small pocket that goes over the top. The person standing behind me was like, Dude, I don't think they're going to let you in with that bag, Kiefer recalls. So I quickly changed it out and I used one of my clear NFL bags instead. I had to wear a bunch of stuff that I didn't want to be wearing unless I had to, just to be able to get in. Kiefer has been to several NFL games and says that while the bag policy at Empower Field is strict, limiting guests to clear totes or gallon Ziploc bags and small purses is He believes the stadium's policy makes sense. You're not going to need seasons worth of clothes at a game at mile high, and you can seek cover if you get caught in a downpour, he says. So a small bag policy at a place like an NFL stadium is not as restrictive as a small bag policy at a place like Red Rocks. Meanwhile, Kitts notes that Coloradans are pretty adept at layering And we've got thousands of people there every night who make it into the venue and are able to stay warm or cool without bringing in giant bags full of clothes. Colorado's largest indoor pickleball facility is coming to Wheat Ridge this fall, by Katie Cheshire. When Third Shot Pickleball opens in Wheat Ridge this fall, it will rank as the largest indoor pickleball facility in Colorado, The Pickleball Club will take over the shuttered Lucky's Market at West 38th Avenue and Wadsworth Boulevard. Its 13 courts will have premium surfaces, netting separating the courts, and a bar and lounge area to keep the fun going off the playing field. Pickleball itself is a very beautiful sport, says co-founder Max Ireland. There's a lot of community that goes with it. And oftentimes, if you go play at the park or something, the community elements sort of end when the game ends. The goal of Third Shot is to provide spaces for those community elements to bloom. It plans to host lessons, drop-in play, tournaments, and clinics for players of all skills and ages, including free Intro to Pickleball classes. Ireland even teases the possibility that those interested in pickleball-themed weddings could use the space for their special day. And if pickleball isn't your thing, the owners have plans for comfy seating, an east-facing patio, trivia nights, and games like cornhole and shuffleboard. The space won't have a full kitchen, but it will have snacks such as pretzels, nachos, and pizza to pair with the drinks, which include signature cocktails as well as recovery smoothies, juices, and other non-alcoholic options. We've got a few things up our sleeve. They'll have some clever names, Ireland says, of the offerings but it was co-founder Adam Kahn who came up with the name of the business. His girlfriend was watching instructional pickleball videos on YouTube before bed, and he says he fell asleep with the mantra of making an effective third shot. In a pickleball game, the third shot is the most important shot in a rally, because the effectiveness of that third shot, most of the time, determines the outcome, he explains. When he woke up, It hit him that Third Shot Pickleball would be a fun name for the business, so the pair ran with it. The targeted opening date is October 1st, depending on the process for securing building permits. Everything is on track at the moment, and Kahn says the city of Wheat Ridge has been awesome to work with so far. For more information about Third Shot and to sign up for its newsletter for updates, visit thirdshotpickleball.com. The team will also be at several events throughout the summer, including QBBQ Fest Denver on May 27th and 28th, where it will offer pickleball lessons. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303 786 7777.